taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 and 14 state, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Thankfully, we know that Christ is risen. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. Upon us is the time of the is the season of the resurrection and Passover and and uh, and times that we need to think about the work of the cross. We need to be thinking about what uh, what God did on that day. Um, and the day was dark. Um, everybody knew it. Everybody recognized it. Um, and uh, God did a work. And as God did that work, he freed us from death, freed us from the the overbearing, arching, overarching uh, thing that was over our heads that was called death. And we just we just want to thank it, thank the Lord for that today. And so spend some time thanking him for it. Um, get to church, people. Get into church. <laughs> Celebrate with your with your church people and and uh, enjoy some time just celebrating and glorifying God. Well, let's bring on Brian Chilton. Hello, Brian. Hello, Curtis. Hope you're doing well. You're doing good. So we finished up our our series this last uh, this last week on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and what and, a great uh, series that was! I, oh, I thoroughly enjoyed going that, through that with you. Yeah, that was good. Um, we kind of planned for five-part series, six-part series, I think, and we stretched it into eight. So I think we did pretty good. We probably could have went on a little further on that. I think you're right because there were some uh, episodes that we well, we covered a large swath of uh, scriptures, and we could have easily dissected those yeah, down into uh, to a few smaller <laughs> podcasts as well. Yep, yep. But today... Um, we're going to kind of be going off of your series that you've been doing on the on the website, which is the defense of the resurrection, and we've been going through um, through different aspects uh, of the defense of the resurrection. And so today, what I wanted to do is take it maybe on a little bit of a different track: defense of the resurrection. Step out of the normal, um, maybe the normal apologetic questions and statements and answers and maybe help bring some of this together um in more of some thoughts of just you know how people think and maybe even how how uh, how how we should be looking at at uh, the resurrection yeah curtis and before we get into that just to just to let everyone know if you are curious and want a one-stop shop to see all of the uh, articles written on the Resurrection Defense Series. If you'll go to bellatorchristi.com, you'll see the logo in the middle. If you look to the right, you'll see the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. There's a link there about the book. 
the Bellator Christie podcast, which has links, which we gotta, I need to update <laughs> that section. It's uh, been a while since I've messed with that. But then there's another page called the Resurrection Defense Series. It's on the right side, on the lower right hand corner. Uh, just we're right beside where it says Moral Apologetics on the logo. If you click that, it'll take you to a page. And on there, it will have all the parts available right now from the Resurrection Defense Series. We have five published, and um, there's three more coming because it's going to be an eight-part series. Uh, we've, we've thus far covered the testimony of women, embarrassing details, multiple eyewitnesses, reasons to believe in the empty tomb, multiple document attestation, but still yet we're going to cover in week six the transformation of eyewitnesses, the importance we find from that. That'll be next week's article. Week 7, the archaeological evidence supporting the resurrection. And then week 8, how the resurrection impacts our theology. Week 8 will be a little different twist from the others, uh, but uh, that'll be what's coming up on the series. So if you're looking again, because we know at Bellator Christie, you know, the, the, the latest article is on top. Um, and so some of the older articles are, are pushed down when that happens. So if you'd like to see a place that has all of the articles in one location, uh, there is a page designated just for that. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited because um, the, more, the more content we get on the website, the more we're going to be able to... Um, be able to then go back and touch on those and even maybe uh build a podcast um within those things to be able oh, to sure. attach those to yeah absolutely so it'd be good so let's start out with uh how does the resurrection prove god's existence this is a great question curtis and and first of all it's important for us to understand what a miracle is uh and so um when we talk about a miracle in and of itself, we're, we're, a miracle is typically understood as a work of God. And so I have two definitions I want to bring, but before I do that, I want to go back to something that Thomas Aquinas stated in the Summa Theologica. He argues, using natural theology, that God's existence can be known by arguing from the effectual necessity of a divine causal agent. So, in, in other words, to bring this down a little bit, it, he's basically saying this. For instance, if a person, well, this morning, you know, I, I went to work and we have a cafeteria there and they have great breakfasts, um, <laughs> which I'm feeling now because <laughs> I've eaten way too much today. But nonetheless, I, I had to blame it on something, so I may as well blame it on the cafeteria. Now, there's great people working there. I wouldn't do that. But, but anyhow, they have wonderful sausage biscuits in the mornings. And so um, after I ate the sausage biscuit, you can see the wrapper or, or tin, you know, tin foil left, aluminum foil left over. You can see breadcrumbs where I ate the, ate the biscuit. And you can see evidence of, I even, I even put a little mustard on my sausage biscuit. So you can see an evidence of an empty pack. You can see there evidence that a sausage biscuit or at least a biscuit of some kind had been eaten there at the desk, at my desk. In like manner, Thomas Aquinas argues that natural theology teaches us that God must exist because he's the best explanation for why the earth, the universe, or why anything exists. 
And he goes through five, he gives five proofs to illustrate how this is the case. Well, this is using classical theology. If we look at evidentialism, just looking at a miracle, we're essentially dealing with the same thing. We're seeing God's interaction with creation. So we need to ask ourselves the question at this juncture, what is a miracle? Well, Peter Kreft states that a miracle is a striking and religiously significant intervention of God in the system of natural causes. That's a good definition, but I really like Gary Habermas's definition. And this comes from a, a note uh, that he has uh, in, uh, in one of our classes, and I think it's a great definition. He says, A miracle is a dynamic, specialized event which nature is incapable of producing that temporarily supersedes or appears to supersede the normally observed known pattern of nature. Such an event is brought about by the power of God or another supernatural agent for the purpose of, get this, now this is really important, the purpose of verifying or drawing attention to a person or a message. So when we go back and we look at the resurrection of Jesus, we see that Jesus taught all throughout his ministry, at least spanning three and a half years, if not longer than that. He taught that, that by the power of God, the kingdom of God had come. By the power of God, he would be, he would be raised from the dead. Humanity would crucify him. He would be buried. And on the third day, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish, so Jesus would be in the tomb three days, and on the third day, he would be risen from the dead by the power of God. Now, a resurrection is not a resuscitation. A resuscitation is like what happened with Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But the thing about Lazarus is that he would die again. He was, his life was given back to the same body that he once had. A resurrection is a complete and total transformation of the body into a new glorified state. So when Jesus was raised, not only was he transformed, not only was he brought back to life, he was transformed into a new glorious being, a new glorious entity, a new glorious body. I think that's the best way to put it. A new glorious body that will never more die, that has new powers. I mean, he was physical. Thomas touched him. Mary touched him. He was able to eat broiled fish, yet he could appear and disappear at, at whenever he chose. Uh, he yeah. essentially appeared in a room. He he who appeared to Cleopas and and uh, another disciple, which many people believe may have been Cleopas's wife, in Emmaus. And then before, as they were as they were running back to Jerusalem, they got in the door and he was already there. How do you do that? <laughs> so this new resurrected state is unlike anything we could ever think or imagine. It is if it happened. If it happened as the Bible said it did, then it is, by all intentions, it is a an act of divinity in creation to bring this about. Hmm. So the yeah. very act, the very causal agency of the resurrection proclaims the existence of God because of its very nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what does the proof uh, of the resurrection say about heaven then? 
Well, you know, Curtis, I think we could say, you know, the, the resurrection obviously teaches us that we will receive an eternal body. Uh, but but I'm, I'm dismayed uh, and, and really kind of discouraged to see the number of people who are turning away from the classic Christian understanding of an intermediate state. Mm. Uh, and the intermediate state is the belief that we will have a conscious spiritual existence with God between our death and the final resurrection. Well, if you think about this, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus serves not only as the first fruits of the resurrection, but he serves as the model that we follow. Think about this. Jesus died a very natural death. He died on a cross, excruciating death, horrible death, but he died on a cross. Okay? Mm-hmm. He gave up the Spirit. He gave up the Spirit. And my understanding of that text is, is, is if he took his Spirit out of his body is, is the way it happened. He removed his Spirit from the body. Okay, so anyhow, he died a natural death. But what does the Bible tell us that happened between the death of Jesus and the resurrection? Well, there's two things. There's two implicit things. Jesus tells us, he tells the criminal on the tomb, not the criminal on the tomb, criminal on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. That very day. That means there's a spiritual state that the criminal would be in heaven with God and Jesus in that spiritual state would be in heaven with God. But there's a mysterious text in Second Peter that tells us, and is even actually part of the original Christian Apostles' Creed, that when Jesus died, he descended to the depths, he descended to hell to preach to the captives. Now, who were the captives? Were they antediluvian people before the flood? Were they Old Testament saints? I don't know. I, we really don't know. Were they people who never had a chance to hear the gospel? I don't know. It does seem to appear that there was this belief in this paradise uh, where the Old Testament saints would have gone in the presence of God, maybe to a degree, maybe they were hindered to some degree, maybe Christ you know, unleashed full access to God until the resurrection. I don't know. There's, a, there's many different ways that you can look at this. But we do know that he says to the criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yet we also learn that he went down to the depths, he went down to Sheol to preach to the captives to set them free, whatever that means. What we can take from this, regardless of how you dissect it, there is a spiritual existence of Jesus between his death and the bodily resurrection. And we follow that same pattern. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So when we die, we die like Jesus did, maybe not on a cross, heaven forbid, but we, we die, our spirit is taken to God. By the way, this is something the Old Testament teaches. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it even tells us that uh, when we die, the body re- returns to the dust and the soul returns to God who gave it. Um, so, uh, And I believe there are reasons to believe that it was thought to be a conscious existence uh, you know, it, with God in heaven. But anyhow, there is that spiritual state between death and the resurrection. Christ on Easter Sunday. Uh, oh, that was the article I was going to share from Answers in Genesis where it defends the use of Easter. Anyhow, that's a different topic. But Jesus did resurrect, and like Jesus' resurrection, one day when he returns, when we have that parousia that it takes place, 
We will right. experience our own Easter Sunday or Friday or Monday or whenever it happens. Uh, we yeah. will have that midnight cry, so to speak, and our bodies will be resurrected just as Jesus's was. So mm-hmm. Easter is not only a remembrance of what happened in the past, but it's also a hope of what will happen in the future. Yeah, it's a picture of what will happen in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So... How does the resurrection prove God's knowledge, power, and sovereignty then amongst us? Great question. You know, I think going back to uh, the the first question, uh, Jesus told us all along that he was going to be resurrected as as um, as he was, as he would be. But Jesus didn't just come upon this hap- by happenstance. The Old Testament. You have to look for it, and you have to make connections. And there are types and shadows in the Old Testament, but the resurrection is there. In fact, um, if you even go, let me uh, pull this up in the Christian Standard Bible. Let, let's let's take a look at Isaiah chapter fifty-three, right quick. Uh, let me type this in. Okay, and I want to just kind of take a few moments because we're kind of zipping through these questions. We have a little extra time. Let me, let me just read through this. If you can't see Jesus in this, there's something wrong. In fact, there are many people. In fact, Michael right. Rydelnik has said that he he's a Jewish man who came to faith in Yeshua, Jesus. And, and he's he read this to some of his Jewish friends and family. And he read this chapter and they said, do you know where this comes from? And they said, well, that's one of the Gospels. He says, no, it comes from our writings. This is, this is our Bible. This is Isaiah 53. So he, here's what Isaiah says. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. Boy, if for someone out there who's going through times of illness and sickness and troubles and trials and tribulations, go back and read verse 3. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He wasn't that person that necessarily everyone came to all the time, even though people did. but he goes on to say he was despised, and he, we didn't value him. Or, or I think some translations will say rejected of men. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted by the way anyone who was crucified or, or hung from a tree was believed to be, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, accursed. Well, the resurrection is what it took to show that he was redeemed from that. Um, He was pierced because of our transgressions or because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all, like sheep, went astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The Lord punished him for our iniquity. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, 
He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. That means he died. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was with the rich, uh, with, was with a rich man at his at his death, because he has done no violence, and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely, when you make him a guilt offering. Now wait, crush him severely. He's made his grave. He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. Now how does that happen? How do you kill someone, put him in a grave, yet you prolong his days? There were many, many Old Testament uh, rabbi or rabbis back in the Old Testament days who really struggled with that. How does that happen? By his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Uh, and after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will carry out their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. Here again, he's alive when this happens. He will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death, was counted among the rebels, and he bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the rebels. Yet he's still living. (laughs) How does that happen? Mm. You know, the the many rabbinic interpreters struggle with that passage of Scripture. They've struggled to know what does that mean? How do we interpret this? Uh, mm-hmm. He was crushed. He was assigned a, a grave, but yet he's he's now prolonged his days, and he's counted them. You know, he's he's gotten all these rewards for the things he's done. How does that happen? Well, honestly, when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, we see that God's foreknowledge came through. The power bringing about the resurrection came through, and even God's sovereignty. And here again, being of the Molinist perspective. I think you can argue that God knew how people would respond when Jesus' message was had uh, had come. You know, uh, be, being a student of history, you can kind of see uh, that that no matter what happens, e- even with uh, the Great Awakening, it startled me in a in a class with. Uh, um, on on our on uh, Jonathan Edwards that he had his opponents. Um, uh, what was his name? Ironside, I think is his was his name. I think they called him. Uh, what was his name? Anyhow, his, his last name was Ironside. There was a guy who was opposed to a Presbyterian minister who was opposed to Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he thought it was all a bunch of poppycock, and he thought it was all just a bunch of hoopla, and it wasn't. Uh, it was disgraceful. He thought the Great Awakening was disgraceful to uh, the the uh, the church. So even no matter when when God moves, there's always going to be opposition to the moving of God. And so, in God's knowledge, He knew what free creatures would do, and He knew that people would ultimately condemn Jesus. Um, and so, anyhow. Um, you know, something in my studies for my dissertation has found something interesting as well, uh, that that the the people were looking for a political Messiah rather than a divine Savior. And so, right. interestingly, when Peter, if you go back to the confession of Peter, Peter knows that he's the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah of God, and Jesus says uh, that this information was given to him by the Father. But then he turns around and says, Peter says, you're not going to go to the cross because he expected this political savior rather than the divine Messiah, or this political Messiah rather than the divine Savior. And Jesus said, get back behind me, Satan, for this very reason. So any of God knew 
how people were going to respond. He knew how people were going to act, and he knew uh, how these events were going to take place even before the dawn of creation. Right. Yeah, so that that kind of brings, I guess, you know, it just brings comfort to you knowing that, that God's power and sovereignty and, and foreknowledge of all of this and how he built this into the whole system and, of salvation. And by his own foreknowledge and sovereignty, you know, God's still moving now. He COVID-19 did not take God by surprise. And, and he allowed it to happen. He allowed all these things to come about. There's a purpose for a purpose. There's a reason behind it. We don't know what it is, and we may not never we may not ever know until we get to yeah. eternity what the what the reason right. was. But there is a good reason for it. And so um, he's still in control now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be nice to know why. <laughs> yeah, and I think in due time, I think in due time we'll, we'll know. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not even so sure that we won't see, you know, maybe something come out of this in the end. It may be a few years down the road, uh, but we may see something come out of this. I think even already, uh, you, you're seeing God moving through the church in different ways, purifying the church, uh, giving you know some churches a fresh start. Some some are going to have to revamp their ministries in some degrees, but. Uh, but I think God is working. I think you've seen some people coming together, families coming together in ways that they haven't in times mm-hmm. past. And so right. there there are some reasons God is allowing this. We may, Again, we may not know what they are right now, but there's a purpose right. behind it. Right. So does Christianity depend on the resurrection being true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if... if <laughs> It's it's hard to read First Corinthians fifteen thirteen through fourteen and not say that it is. Right. We read this at the outset of the podcast, but going back, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that He raised Christ up, whom He did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. But, he goes on to say, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Christ, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will, may, all, excuse me, will be made alive. So, yeah. it's difficult to read that passage of Scripture. I mean, even if you're not even looking at this from a historical perspective, if you're looking at it from nothing else than a biblical perspective, it's difficult to say that the that the resur- that Christianity doesn't hinge on the resurrection. If the resurrection's right. not true, Christianity's not true. Um, yeah. Then we need to become Jewish or Hindu or pantheist or yeah. whatever. But Christianity wouldn't be the way. It all comes down yeah. to a bodily resurrection of Jesus for Christianity right. to be true. Because if he yeah. hasn't been raised, then he's left on the tree, and then by the Jewish law, he's he's deemed cursed. It mm-hmm. took the resurrection to redeem, not that Jesus needed to be redeemed because he's the perfect son of God. He's the son of man. 
But it took that to redeem the status of Jesus because he left the earth being hung on a tree. He came back glorified. So if Jesus had not been raised, the message of the gospel would not have been preached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. And and so uh, it would it would not uh, be any different than any other um, religion out there, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean... Yeah. yeah, most certainly. Yeah. So if the resurrection was Jesus' greatest confirmation of his identity and authority, then why did his adversaries reject the confirmation and falsely claim that his body was stolen? You know, Curtis, of all the questions that you formed, I thought this one <laughs> this one was the most challenging. I mean, all of them are challenging, but this one particularly was the most challenging because I, I think there, I think to answer this, you've got to do a little investigation to the human experience. Yeah. Um, I think you need to go back and dig and see why it was that they rejected Jesus as they did. And I think it comes down, as I've really thought about this and prayed about this, I think it comes down to two reasons, two answers. One is pride. Um, yeah. Jesus, I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus was highly educated. Of course, yes, he's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He's the Barn Anash, you know, and um, most certainly. But I think he was. I think he was educated far more than we give credit. Give him credit. But if he was educated, he he learned in the Galilean schools. And by the way, whenever the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, when the when the Jewish leaders say that uh, Peter and John were unschooled, mm-hmm. they meant they were not schooled in the Judean schools. They didn't mean that they were illiterate. Uh, that I don't think that's what that means. I think they meant that they weren't trained in our schools, because remember right. these it's, things are happening they, in Judea. Yeah, I was going to say later on in that in that. Uh, passage they say but he'd been with they had been with jesus yeah i mean so gamaliel he's one of the top he's he is the top teacher of that day you know paul was trained by gamaliel he was found in the judean school i mean it's kind of like you know i went to liberty i'm very proud to be a liberty flame but with some people since liberty is a conservative school some people will look at me and says well you didn't go to yale or you didn't go to harvard so you're nothing you know because you didn't go to our school, we don't deem you knowledgeable or whatever you know, the case may be. You know, there, there's some people who have that elitism about them. And I'm not picking on Yale or Harvard. I'm just using that as an example. But the same thing happened here. <laughs> Watch it. We're going to get all sorts of hate mail from that. <laughs> <laughs> and you can certainly send all complaints to Ronan Montana. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. <laughs> I said it. I'll take the blame. Yeah. But if you think about this, here was Jesus coming down from Galilee, coming down from Nazareth. And even, some, you know, some people would say, can there be anything good coming from Nazareth? Jesus mm. comes from Galilee. He comes from this little town of Nazareth, and he makes a mockery of their intellect. Think about this. The Jewish leaders, the, the highest trained individuals of the day, they're trying to stump Jesus at every turn. They're throwing out logical propositions. They're throwing out everything in their arsenal, and they cannot trip him up. Well, obviously, that's going to aggravate them to no end. But then right. you've got another reason 
to deal with. Not only is there pride, but there is also financial security. Think about this for a moment. One of the, if you're a Jewish person living in the first century, one of the best paying positions you could have is to be a religious elder. Oh, okay. To, to work in the temple, to be part of the Sanhedrin. If, if That's why Paul brags about being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was trained by Gamaliel. He was on a track of financial success. If you lived right. in the temple, you had it made in the shade. And so there, it became a money-making machine. Yes, it was religious. Yes, it had, you know I, I have no doubt in my mind that the, that the that many of the leaders had the best intentions in mind that they were that they were um, doing it to glorify God. But you can't tell me just knowing people that if they had this financial security through the Temple Mount, when you have this prophet from Galilee telling people you. that you don't need to go to the Temple any longer. You destroy this temple in three days. I can I can build it back. Yeah. <laughs> that is challenging the core root of their financial security. And then add at least once we know of that Jesus comes and overturns the table. I believe John presents a second time, and it very well may be that he did this every time he came to Jerusalem. For all we know, he did this intentionally to make mm-hmm. a statement to make a point. And so mm-hmm. because of this. Understand, it was politics that killed Jesus, I really believe. Yes, our sin theologically killed Jesus. But I believe that if you look for the human intention, intentionality behind this, it was political investments. Because remember, the Sadducees had been placed by the Roman Empire. They weren't the rightful priests of that day. They were placed by the Romans in the temple. Jesus challenged their political establishment he challenged the financial security brought about by the temple. And when you start doing that, uh, we know, you know throughout the pages of history, when you start challenging uh, high positions, it becomes an ultra-dangerous place to be. Right. Yeah, so, you know, when you said pride, I think that's probably... That probably tears it at more of the reality of we we can re- we can relate to it easier yeah. when we when we understand pride is the potential of what um, what the issue was and I think that's um, willful rejection of Christ's work on the cross or the confirmation of his identity. Um, they they didn't want to see it, exactly. and so they want yeah they wanted to keep going on living their life and like you said when you got a, a Galilean um, challenging their way of life they're going to and maybe that could even go to provoking the statement that Caiaphas made when he stated that one must die for the good of all. Yeah, and remember that was his prophetic. That was his prophecy because God would speak through the high prophet, the high priest, prophetically, Mm -hmm. and that would end up being the the prophetic statement through the high priest. And I've been told I can't prove this, but I've been told that after the the sacrifice was made, 
that they would take the Urim and the Thummim, you know, the two dice or the dice that they had, uh, and they sure. would roll it out. And, um, and if, if, I think it's, if, if it's a white rock, I can't remember which is which. The white rock meant yes, I believe, and the black rock meant no, or maybe it's vice versa, however it is. Every time after the time of Christ, when the sacrifice was made, the answer came up no up until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So every, again, I can't confirm that, but there's a historical source somewhere that states that every year that uh, it was the, the the negative response. Whenever the priest asked, "Do you receive our our sacrifice?" the the negative response was given every year after that. Again, I can't prove that, but um, you know, hmm. I have to look into that a little bit more. But I remember reading that or hearing that somewhere, right? From from what I would right. call and a reliable source. So when you were saying when you were talking about um, Jesus coming to the temple and and cleaning house. Um, for the life of me right now, I cannot think of the uh, priestly law that was given, priestly rule that was given, uh, process that was given, I shouldn't say rule, but pr- uh, process that was given to cleansing a house of uh, with mold or with uh, leaven in it. Um, and the priest was to go and inspect the house, tear everything out that needed to be tore out, um, you know, once and then do it again if he found it again. And then if the third time, then that house was to be destroyed. And I cannot remember for the life of me the scripture that that says that um, implicitly. So, therefore, Jesus was our high priest. You can kind of compare, you know, types and shadows. Um, Was Jesus coming and clearing the temple once and then twice checking for leaven, checking for the sin of the people, you know, uh, sin that was, was, uh, destroying the temple and then, uh, found it again the second time. So the third time it was destroyed. I would love for you to, to maybe look that up this, this upcoming week, Curtis, and maybe give us a report yeah. on that next week, if you don't mind, because that, yeah. that would be a powerful passage of scripture, to to discuss some next week and and even kind of mm-hmm. look at uh, the overturning of the tables in that light. I think that would make an excellent piece. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll do some we'll do some looking and I'll have to, <laughs> have to do some digging. I, I'd love to see that. I think that that would be a powerful and I think a, a very compelling reason to believe that the uh, t- that the tables were overturned more than just the one time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know. With Caiaphas saying, you know, being prophetic and speaking through that, um, you know, and then as the as the crucifixion was approaching, so as that whole time period was approaching, Jesus challenging these these high priests or this high priest at that time, the high priest rips his robe, right when he says blasphemy. And 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 he basically, what more proof do we need? Well, at that moment that he rips that rips his robe, that automatically makes that priest unfit or unclean to do the work of a priest. <laughs> Therefore, Jesus being the picture of the high priest, um, going in doing the work for us. So there's a lot of types and shadows within that, and I think 
when you hit pride, I think that's that really speaks to the depth of a lot of what was there. Oh yeah, I, I really and, do. And 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 again, don't don't dis- discount to the the at least for the Sadducees, the the financial security aspect of it as well. Mm. Because I mean, and I think that ties into pride as well. But 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 you are looking at a a again. I think that's one of the things that Jesus was combating. Uh, you, this is a house of prayer, and you and you've made Just it into like today. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly what happens today, and that's <laughs> yeah. why I believe there's a purification element going on in the modern Ooh, church. Yeah. I, yeah. I I believe there's a purpose behind this. Um, I really do, but but nonetheless, um, when you start challenging, well, going back to Jonathan Edwards, when you start challenging the financial. Uh, the financial um, stability or the financial aspects of any institution, you better watch out. Because actually, when Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, preacher of the Great Awakening, he lost his job at Northampton Church because of finances. Mm. They fired him. They uh, and it's just it stupefies me to consider that 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 the great Jonathan Edwards would be fired from a church but that's what happened because of finances <laughs> uh never good when money gets involved uh, that's exactly right kind of kind of goes to that whole thing when uh when the Jewish leaders came to him and asked Jesus well who do we pay our taxes and Jesus says give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Absolutely. And implicitly, implicitly with that with that statement, what Jesus was meaning is, give your heart and soul. You know, what was the what was the commandment? You know, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right. That's right. So that's what Jesus was implying. You can give the money to Caesar, but but give what's God, what's deserving to God, which is you. Exactly. Powerful. So, what affirms that the early believers actually saw Jesus after the crucifixion? Well, I'll just briefly touch on this because so far this is what the, the Resurrection Defense series has has been mm-hmm. been focused on. Uh, uh, multiple attestation. You have numerous sources. This is what we wrote about. Uh, this is what was presented this past week. Uh, you have the four Gospels. If you hold to the Q hypothesis, you may have a fifth one. But the Q may be more teachings of Jesus, so that's questionable whether or not you have the stories of the resurrection in Q. But at least four Gospels. You have the First Corinthians 15 Creed. You have the sermon summaries of Peter. You have the sermon summaries of Paul. You also have uh, the, uh, the testimony of Stephen. Uh, in in the book of Acts, which is also another sermon summary, even though that comes from the same book, they're coming from three different people. You also have the Romans ten nine confession, uh, which is also early material as well. So those that's nine sources uh, for the resurrection, early sources as well. Testimony of women, we can never discount this that uh, a woman's testimony was not held in, in as high stature as a man's in ancient ta- in ancient days. So for Jesus to be seen first by Mary Magdalene, a woman of whom the Bible says that that seven demons were cast from her at one point in time. So you have a demon possessed woman, formerly de- former demon possessed woman, seeing Jesus alive the first time for the very first witness. You wouldn't make that up. 
Uh, it has to no. be true. Uh, the number yeah. of witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15, you see that uh, uh, Peter and James and Paul and the 12 disciples and over 500 people at one time see Jesus yeah. alive. And there's even evidence to suggest that this happened not only, not only one time, but may have happened. It may have happened at least two, if not three times, uh, wow. after the resurrection. So with the 500, let me just say this. So we understand the the feeding of the 5,000 as they counted men only in that in that uh, in, in when they counted people, right? Mm-hmm. So when they're talking about 500, were they talking in that same accounting type form or were they actually saying no there was 500 people or in rather than you see what i'm saying it it depends on who you ask now i believe that they're only talking about men because the first corinthians 15 Mm -hmm. the first Corinthians 15 creed leaves out a a major testimony and that's that's the testimony of mary magdalene you don't see Mm -hmm. women counted in that list and it may have been for the very reason we mentioned before, because this being an early creed that they're presenting uh, the, the 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 strongest uh, uh, witnesses of that time. So it may very, I mean, because you don't see any women listed in the previous uh, portions of the creed, even though women were the first were the first to see Jesus alive. So I'm kind of of the persuasion. Not everyone agrees with me. That's okay. But I'm kind. Of, but the text says of over 500 brethren. Now mm-hmm. the CSB says brothers and sisters. This is one area of the CSB that I dis- that I differ. Um, it says brethren. So since they are only listing men in the number thus far, I believe they're only talking about men. So if you add, if that's true. Then you could add mm-hmm. women to the list. You could add children to the list, and then so you may be talking upwards of two thousand people by the time you count all that. Um, right. So, but even see if you, that that was my question because because as as that time period, the accounting of of people was was difficult to understand by the normal reader or the normal person. Right. You had to do some digging and figuring out historically how they did that yeah so we know from the from the feeding of the five thousand that they were most likely twenty thousand people by the time you count women and children (laughs) that's a football stadium it is it's a huge (laughs) amount of people so i i i argue that we could do the same thing with that number in the first corinthians 15 crete but even if you can't we know the number was over 500 people even if all we have is like 550 or or even say a th- or 700 or something like that say that's the exact number that's a bunch of people 500 people is yeah. a bunch of people um yeah so 500 people seeing the same thing discounts yeah. any idea of a hallucination a hallucination yeah. is an individualized event it, it, it's not something that can be shared anyhow yeah you don't have a group group hallucination yeah you could have an illusion you could have something like that but you can't have Mm -hmm. you can't have a hallucination in a group Mm -hmm. yeah right 
So you also yeah, have that and then the empty tomb. Oh, I'm sorry, the transformed lives. We'll talk about that uh, coming up on that. I think it was next week uh, or, or the one after about transformed lives. The fact that you had enemies of the gospel now now following right. Christ. James, he didn't believe in Jesus during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Paul was an, was an adversary of Jesus early on. They both followed Jesus adamantly after the resurrection event. And that's difficult to describe. And then, of course, the empty tomb. We mentioned, mentioned that. And then the early message of Christianity, Richard Balkum, uh, and, and this kind of goes into the next the next point. Richard Balkum, uh well, let me just hold that off. Let me hold that off to the next question, and I'll, I'll say what I was going to say there. But yeah. but nonetheless, well, the, all of these things taken together makes a very compelling argument for the resurrection. Yeah, and just the fact that you have, you know, good religious Jews at that time period, Jewish people that, that believed in the Messiah, believed that God's, they were God's chosen people, um, why would they have a any desire or need to abandon their religion or their religious thoughts or um, understanding of that if it wasn't true? Yeah, and that's going to go into our 10th question, so I want to save my response right. to the last question, uh, or the ninth question, I think it is. I'm going to save my response to that, right. because there are right. things that happened early on that are also historically uh, huge for the resurrection, mm-hmm. and so I'll save that for our last question. Sure. So here's one that I, I know that this kind of touches on touches on your uh, your inquisitive bone here so <laughs> <laughs> what evidential power do the creeds hold for the resurrection huge absolutely huge uh, so, so that there are many creeds and um, I'm not, not going to mention too much about my work on the dissertation if it goes through it goes through the processes and is accepted um, then I definitely won't want to talk a lot about it, but uh, but for now I'll just simply say that I, I think there are more things in the Scripture to speak of its early nature than than only the creeds and and again that's all I'm going to say. But I think the creeds are are huge. They they you know we're talking about First Corinthians 15. Bart Ehrman, agnostic New Testament scholar from UNC Chapel Hill, says that 1 Corinthians 15 is no later than two years, two, three years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Richard yeah, Balkum, Richard Balkum, J- James D.G. Dunn, Richard Balkum even says that the creed may be within months of the crucifixion of Jesus. This has led Richard Balkum very early in one of his books to state that the earliest Christology was the highest Christology. And what that means is you don't have, because, for instance, back in the the late nineties, early two thousands, PBS put, put, published a, um, a series of television shows, and I think they had some articles called "From Jesus to the Christ," and their thesis was that the idea of resurrection and the heavenly aspect of Jesus being the divine Son of God is something that grew over time that established over time that he was a human teacher, and then over time legendary material was added, and he became embellished to be the divine Son of God. That's not what you see with the historical data. No, it's actually opposite of that. Exactly the opposite. Out of the gate, Mm -hmm. 
out of the gate they were preaching the risen Jesus. Out of the gate mm-hmm. they held held him in as in a, as divine uh, savior. What you actually find, historically speaking, is you move from this state to more human aspects, more right. focus on human human aspects as you go further in the history of the church, uh, and then how you blend those two together, the divine nature and the human nature. So it's it's very compelling what these creeds do, but they show very early on um, the, the belief that the early church had about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Skeptics have stated before, well, we don't have early enough evidence of Jesus. First Corinthians. 15, how early do you need it? <laughs> how early do you need it? Jeez, you know you you believe in you know Socrates and some of these others that are the records of of what they wrote and had thoughts of years and years, like hundreds of years after they were on the earth. Well, you have less evidence for Socrates than you do Jesus because Socrates didn't write anything. It was all preserved by Plato. Jesus didn't write anything, but they were preserved by at least four disciples. You have other creeds that were written about him and of you know of him. Uh, so you have you have more data supporting the existence of Jesus, what he taught and what he did, than you even do the great Socrates. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so they're they're willing to believe that or willing to to accept that as so it, there again it falls back to pride yeah ex- <laughs> it really exactly does because if you're not willing to accept it then you're not willing to accept anything that's written in history that that's the scary part is is that that mindset or that um that thread of logic really um eats at even their own how they how they come to believe anything else in history i have seen some skeptics even dismiss the historical data for jesus so much that they would rather deny that anything can be known of history than to say that the resurrection could be known by the historical data are you kidding me and i wish i were oh my goodness (laughs) i wish i was I wish I was, but uh, but I have come across skeptics online, um, and and even some you know that are very highly trained individuals who had rather just dismiss to say nothing can be known of history. They'd rather say that than to say that that it could be historically known that the the, the details about Jesus of Nazareth. That's scary. Where that leads? Oh yeah, that, where that leads you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's even like yeah. Lawrence Krauss. He's even said that he doesn't want God to exist. It's not a matter of whether God exists. Right. He and yeah. other cosmologists have said they don't want to live in a world where God exists. So even if there's evidence, they just don't. They don't want it to be true. Yeah, they don't want it to be true. Yeah. Yeah. They can go on living their life. Yeah. Yep. So, I got one here. Number eight. Can the minimal facts? presented by Habermas give proof that the resurrection happened yeah but they don't but but um, they can but it's limited because the minimal mm-hmm. facts the minimal facts are giving us what the majority of scholars grant about the life and ministry of Jesus so when it comes to the resurrection it's worded in such a way to say that the disciples had experiences which led them to believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead. 
So they encountered something. Now, that doesn't necessarily state in and of itself that Jesus rose bodily and physically. Um, I think there are other things that need to be added to that to beef up that defense. Right. But it does right. show us that the core details, historically speaking, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are true. Um, you know, it, it is evident that Jesus died on a cross. Even John Dominic Croson of the Jesus Seminar said that's the most historically verifiable fact of antiquity, that Jesus died on a cross by, by Romans. Um, it's, it's undeniable that James and Paul had an experience that transformed their lives. Um, it's undeniable that the disciples had experiences which would even lead them to be willing to give up their lives for what they knew to be true. Uh, it's undeniable that they had experiences that led them to believe that Jesus was alive. And it's undeniable that the message of, of Jesus was early and began in Jerusalem. That's undeniable. These are all undeniable facts about Jesus. Mm. Um, so you can say that uh, they had they had experiences that led them to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, but that doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection as we understand it as Christians. Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess that was why I formed these questions the way I did, um, mostly because you hear a lot of ap- apologetics being given um, by using the minimal facts, which is great. Mm-hmm. I, you know, God's existence using minimal facts and, and so on and so forth. But I really think it falls short on being able to defend the resurrection. Oh yeah, and Hampermas would be the one to tell you that too. That is, this, this is this is giving what all the majority of scholars will give us. This is using it as a basis to see what they give us, and it's as as I've heard him say before, it's a heads I win, tails you lose scenario. So if we can use this as as the basis, this is the, this builds the skeleton of our argument. And from that, okay. we can flesh okay. out the details. And this, is where, this is where yeah. people have misunderstood Habermas. It's from these minimal facts that we can flesh out the material to make a more robust mm-hmm. defense for the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what he does mm-hmm. in his books and literature. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that was why I wanted to ask that question in that way. And, and this is so, an area that, that where he is greatly misunderstood. Yeah. So... Did the early church forget their Jewish roots, or did they believe that the cross was the finished work of the Messiah? I love how you say roots. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to say? Roots? Is that how you want me to say it? <laughs> Sound a little weird doing that. <laughs> um, Man, I didn't forget the question. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> So to answer the question, uh, yes and no. Yes and no. They most certainly did not forget their Jewish roots. Uh, Most certainly they didn't. Uh, However, they lessened the emphasis that they placed on certain rituals and special holy days. They didn't mean that these special holy days and rituals weren't important any longer. It just mean, means that it didn't hold the substantial value that they once did, seeing that Christ had fulfilled the law and brought about the new covenant. So, for instance, they realized that in Christ they found the fulfillment of the law. They no longer had to offer sacrifices 
when Christ was the once for all sacrifice. Now, right. did some of them still bring a sacrifice to the temple? Huh, they may have, for all we know. Yeah. Um, Who knows? Yeah. But this doesn't mean that the practice was completely abolished. You know, it may be that some still celebrated certain days and festivals. Uh, maybe that Paul may have still continued celebrating Hanukkah. We know Jesus did. Um, yeah. So it may have been that they still celebrated, you know, Passover. I feel that they still probably celebrated Passover, but eventually, oh, you know, yeah. that the emphasis was placed on the Lord's Supper, on the Eucharist, on, on the table of Christ at the last Passover that He had with them. Um, however, there are certain things that were dramatically changed in the church. One of the most important historical aspects of the worship of the church that was changed was that they moved the day of worship from the Sabbath day, which was on Saturday, to the Lord's day, which was on Sunday morning. Resurrection now, day. Resurrection day. That's exa- And, and right. for them to do that, that historically speaks volumes of the authenticity of the resurrection because they would most certainly not do something like that unless something major had happened on that Sunday morning. And so um, that's one thing that was changed. Um, they also did not depend on old practices like the circumcision of the flesh. Now, did, did, did they, being Jewish Christians, most likely have their children circumcised? I feel they probably did, continuing right. the practice. But they didn't require it of Gentile Christians. They didn't require people coming into the church any longer to be circumcised. Yeah, yeah in fact, that was a big argument with Paul. Yeah, that that yeah, led Paul, to the Paul. yeah that led to the first council meeting that needed to be called what forty eight A D the Jerusalem yeah. Council where they had yeah. to decide what were they going to do with Gentile Christians were they going to force yeah. them to be circumcised or not right right and obviously right. the answer yeah. was they didn't right yeah and James in the book of James um, you know he's basically talking about okay now that we got this now that we have this faith this jewish faith and now we got the messiah how are we going to walk this out you know essentially yeah. that's what if you summarize the book of james that's essentially what it's about how are we going to how are we going to live this out now exactly and that was yeah. a big controversy i mean because you have i mean this became an issue in corinth uh, not only with uh, jewish festivals but you had, you know, you had Jewish Christians come into faith, and they would have a certain particular holy days they would keep. But then you had Gentile Christians from Corinth coming in the church. They were used to sacrificing meat to idols. They were used to uh, celebrating different mm. feast days. And you know, Paul told them that you know there was grace in that. You know, uh, they were advised not to participate in certain things and not do certain things, but. But, but as far as whether you want to celebrate it for a certain festival or not celebrate it for a certain festival, that comes up to a person's liberty to decide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I thank God that we got that kind of liberty. I know that, you know, you think about it, I'm sure there were probably some that were like, whew, free bird, we can just do what we want to do, and, <laughs> you know. And then the others, I'm sure probably, you see, it's, it just falls into typical human nature, you know, Um when you have some rules and things kind of pulled off, you know, pulled off you, you, you kind of feel a little more free. And then there's those that are like, ooh, we can't go too far. We, we want to keep it somewhat. 
Well, how, how would you love to have been Peter, who all his life he'd been abstaining pork, and God then yeah. says, go ahead and eat it. It's fine now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you've been taught and preached this all your life. Don't eat pork. Don't eat certain foods. Yeah. And now right. he has the vision of this blanket being being taken down from heaven with all these foods, and says, "You know, eat, you know, eat and partake of these things." Now, mm-hmm. that had to be yeah. very hard, very difficult for Peter. I mean, we talk about changes in the church today to yeah. uh, reach a new generation of individuals. That's child's play compared to what they had to deal with when yeah. you're talking about changing the dietary laws that they had. <laughs> Yeah. Been raised up. Never even thought of it in that way. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. think changing the style of music and reading from a different translation is is difficult. <laughs> Try changing. Oh, man. what you've been taught all your life yeah. into something new to reach people for yeah. Christ. Yeah, we can't even get past the KJV <laughs> controversy <laughs> for pity's sake. <laughs> well, for heaven's oh. sakes, if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's a ladder that's been there since the 1100s, and it all and the reason it's there is they had to do some type of work to the church to preserve it, and the two different groups couldn't figure out what to do with the ladder. They never could agree what to do with the ladder, so it's left there and still there to this day. It's 1100 years. <laughs> take it down. Too many. It's probably rotted by now. I wouldn't want to put any feet on it. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> oh, this has been a good podcast. We've got a lot of information in, and so we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending the time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say. Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, 
on the Kindle and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to true north. The Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of BellatorChristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today. You're going to change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision. Make it plain. We're training champions to change the world. That vision of training champions for Christ to change the world is the foundation of Liberty University. It always has been, and it always will be. Everything we are today is built upon it. But while our vision hasn't changed since 1971, the world around us has. Fewer and fewer people understand what we mean when we say train champions for Christ. So we show them. We show them what authentic faith in Christ looks like through the lens of academics, athletics, through the way we have fun and the way we serve one another and the world. We show them that we the faithful, the bold, the united, and the brave are also we the creators, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and the leaders. We the champions are committed to tackling the issues of our time with integrity and prayer. Our vision hasn't changed. It has strengthened, broadened, expanded. It has grown into over 550 programs of study, reaching into over 80 countries, uniting over 100,000 students into a beautifully diverse family with a singular vision. We the champions, in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, Ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge. 
Do resolve to be the voice for the voiceless. Bring healing to the hurting. Fight for the oppressed. Defend freedom. Defy stereotypes. And follow God's call wherever it may lead. Find out more about Liberty University by visiting liberty.edu.